Well, good morning. It is great to see you. I'm glad uh, that you decided to be with us this second week of Advent. And uh, if you did not know, if you weren't here last week and didn't hear Timothy say earlier, we're doing a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, uh, this Advent, Luke chapters 1 through 2, which are tied together by four different people who are responding to the coming of the Christ child by bursting out into deep song. Last week, we looked at the song of Mary. This week, we're going to look at Zechariah. Next week, we'll look at the angels. And on Christmas Eve, we will hear Simeon sing. And if we're going to be a people who are characterized by deep song rather than merely lip syncing, if we're going to be a people who are characterized by jubilant song rather than merely mouthing the words here, here on a Sunday morning or throughout our week, if we're going to be a people who hear these songs in Luke chapter 1 through 2 and our souls respond by praising the Lord rather than hearing these songs sung and being a people unmoved, we need God to do His work in us and on us this morning. And so we need to open God's Word and we need to pray. And so I'm going to read God's Word in Luke 1 and if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read our passage, God's Word to us this morning, Luke chapter 1. Verse 57 through 79, and then I'm going to pray for us. This is God's word to us. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout the, uh, through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet, to the way of peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do your work on us this morning and in us deeply. By your Holy Spirit, would you use your word that is living and active to speak to our spirits, to change us, to illumine our minds, to plow up the ground of our hearts so that the gospel of Jesus can go deep within us. Lord, only you can do that. So I pray that you would 
remove me, the preacher, so that Christ is exalted, so that you, Jesus, speak, that we would feast upon you this morning, and we would be changed as a result. Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, I learned this past week that if you were to go to a rugby match in England, for instance, if you would have been at the England versus France match on February 4th, 2017, you would have heard 80,000 people break out into a song. A song that has become the anthem for England's rugby. And it's the song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Many of you might automatically find that awkward, maybe even wrong. Because most of us know the song Swing Low, Sweet Chariot as an African-American slave spiritual. In a New York Times article in March of this year, Josephine Wright, a professor of music and black studies at the College of Worcester in Ohio, said that the lyrics of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot allude to feelings of despair and a desire for release from suffering. In the 1800s, the song was a surreptitious alert on the Underground Railroad, as well as a funeral song. John M. Williams, the director for the Center for the Sociology of Sport at the University of Leicester in England, said in this same article, I can understand why the awkwardness for many Americans that we sing this song at rugby matches. The only thing I could give them as a kind of strange reassurance is that I suspect the vast majority of people singing it have no idea where it came from, or even that it's American at all, or that it has a black American heritage. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, sung at a rugby match in England, or Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, sung by African-American slaves on the Underground Railroad, escaping the oppression of of slavery in the South, are two very different songs. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming forward to carry me home by a crowd of rugby fans is about triumph in sport. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home by the African-American community is a song about liberation and triumph from oppression and death. Understanding the backdrop and the history of a song makes all the difference in understanding it, and it makes all the difference in how we sing the song. So before we look into Zechariah's song and what he's singing, I want us to look at who is singing. And why is he singing? Because I want us to be a people who sing deeply from our hearts. Who's singing? I didn't read the first part of Luke chapter 1. Let me read verses 5 to 6. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah is a priest. He's busy about temple business, and he married a woman, Elizabeth, whose family is from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth are remarkable servants of God. Zechariah is a faithful priest in his religious duties. But an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him that Elizabeth's going to bear a son, and they shall name him John. And then Luke 1, verse 18, Zechariah says, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. We're too old to have a child. Zechariah's initial response to the news of God being at work and the sending of a child is not a song. Rather, it's doubt. 
He is a doubtful servant of God. Listen, religious busyness will not always lead you to sing deeply. You can be religiously active and have no faith. You can be religiously aware but doubt God's power. So what makes Zechariah move from doubt to singing deeply, blessed be the Lord God of Israel? Why is he singing? After Zechariah responds with doubt, the angel Gabriel in Luke 1 verse 20 responds and says, Zechariah, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. God shuts Zechariah's mouth. And he is unable to speak for nine months. Many commentators think he's deaf and mute, living in complete silence for nine months. During the early hours of Wednesday, uh, my stomach started hurting uh, and painful, painful. And all day Wednesday, I was laid up on my couch uh, or in my bed. And and laying still for one day is hard for me. Uh, And I didn't feel like talking to anybody. I, I was in so much pain. I just laid there in silence. And I was able to to pray a good bit, talk with God. And as I laid there, I I thought about this text. What would it mean for me and my relationship with God uh, and in my relationship with God and my relationship with my family or for me and my relationship uh, to this church and the ministry God's called me to if I could not hear or say anything for nine months? No preaching, No meetings, no counseling, no singing, a whole lot more seeing, a whole lot more observing, looking into the eyes of my wife and children, looking to the eyes of people that I pass by, a lot more time to read and write letters and to write prayers in my journal and a lot more time to meditate on God's Word. Zechariah had nine months to ponder and meditate on God's work in his life. Nine months to meditate on the Word and God's faithfulness to Him. If we want to sing, church, and sing deeply, we have to be a people who stop. Zechariah is this religiously busy person, and God forces him to stop. And it's in his pondering and meditation on God and prayer to God that he bursts forth in deep song. What would you do with nine months of silence? What would you do with nine months of silence? May I encourage you to try and spend one day in silence soon. Get crazy, go for two or three days. Get away somewhere. Silence is a spiritual practice few of us engage in. Silence, a time to remember and meditate on God's Word and pray and allow God to work in us and on us. God shuts Zachariah's mouth. And then God opens his mouth when they name the child John. It wasn't when the child was born that God opened his mouth. God opens his mouth in the naming of the child at the circumcision. Some of you know that naming a child can be hard work. It is in the Mason household. It's hard for us to arrive on a name for a child. And everybody likes to give suggestions and family members want to chime in on what you think. what they think the child should be named. Well, that's what's happening here for Zachariah and Elizabeth. The angels told Zachariah and Elizabeth the child will be called 
John. But everybody in this small town celebrating assumes that they're going to call this child Zachariah Jr. But verse 61 says the, the family and friends protested. That none of your relatives are called by this name. And then Zachariah wrote on the tablet, his name is John. He's very emphatic because through these nine months, Zechariah has been moved from doubt to faith. Doubt to trusting God because he's been spending time in meditation and prayer and remembering God's faithfulness. So in faith, he names his son John. He believes and God opens his mouth to sing his praise. Blessed be God. Blessed, the Latin is benedictus. Maybe you've heard the song referred to as benedictus. That's where it comes from. It's quite interesting that God works on Zechariah. He works on him by rebuking him for doubt and making him deaf and mute for nine months. And it's in this very rebuke that God uses to draw Zechariah to faith. You need to know that God will use gracious discipline to lead you to sing more deeply. God will lead you through hard times to bring you out to sing His praise. God will even use the scars formed in your life from former sins to bring about memorials of His grace from your mouth and your heart. It is God who closes and opens the mouth. God is the one at work. The first words from Zechariah's mouth, blessed be the Lord God. Once he believed God is at work in his life, he had to worship. As soon as his mouth was open, I mean, the joy of his salvation that was pent up for months breaks forth in this song. It breaks out into this song of salvation. You know, the last three verses, verses 76 through 79, are about John, who's the forerunner to the Christ child. But the rest is about the salvation that the Christ child would bring. Zechariah knows that God is, verse 68, visiting his people. God is redeeming his people. He's intervening for the people of God and for Israel. And he's doing so by sending the Christ. And Israel, as the covenant people, they had been sitting in silence a lot longer than nine months. For 400 years, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New, God had been silent, not speaking to the people of God. 400 years of sitting in darkness with no light from the Lord. 400 years of rebuke because of their unfaithfulness and lack of trust. And now God is visiting His people. God is going to speak through the Word made flesh. God is going to save his people. So Zechariah burst into deep song from his heart about this salvation. So what does he sing? I heard a good friend of mine, Pastor Brian Salter, summed up this song with three images that come from here. This is a song of salvation that we see in the horn, the house, and the horizon. Horn, house, horizon. Three images that we see. Let's look first at the horn. Verse 69, Zechariah sings, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Not a horn talking about the kind of horn that we'll have up on stage sometimes playing in worship. It's not a musical instrument. Horns were used as a symbol of an animal's power and strength. Specifically, it references the horns of an ox. The ox horn is a deadly weapon. Ox horn is an offensive weapon. 
Psalm 18, verse 2, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, in whom I take refuge. He's my shield. Defensive weapons, weapons of protection. And then Psalm 18, 2, and he's the horn of my salvation. The horn is an offensive weapon used by an ox to attack. One of the coolest experiences of my life was going on a safari in Zambia, Africa. I was two feet from a lion. Now, I had to trust the guide that was on this safari because the guide told me that a lion looks and sees a Jeep. They just see one big image. They don't see all the people in the Jeep. So it's one big image, bigger than the lion, so the lion's not going to attack it. So I'm, we're in an open-air Jeep. I'm in the far back row, far right side of the Jeep. And we're driving down the road, and all of a sudden we see a lion just coming down the street. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm far right. This lion passes like that by me. It freaked. It was like the coolest, most freaked out I've ever been in my life. Imagine you get left in the middle of a field in the jungle of Zambia or South Africa, and all of a sudden you see a powerful lion running swiftly towards you. And then coming out of nowhere, an ox charges the lion, pierces the lion with his horn, impales the lion in its side, raises its head with the lion impaled in victory. Once you're dead in your tracks, the next moment you're rescued. That's the picture of the kind of salvation that the Christ brings. An aggressive conquering upon the king's arrival. Let me say something. If you don't think you need an aggressive rescue from Christ, you'll never sing. The deeper your sense of needing rescue, the deeper your song will be in your rescue. Jesus is the horn of salvation, the conquering king who impales all of our enemies. Secondly, let's look at the house. Verse 69 says, In the house of David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The coming of Jesus from the house of David. This is an announcement of a royal arrival, a changing of the guard. No longer would Israel be under the oppression of their enemies. Now, at this point in history, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. So this Christ child would come and rescue them from their enemies. They know the Advent reading of Isaiah 9-6. They knew the prophecy of Isaiah that a child would be born. And the government would be upon his shoulders. and the increase of his government, there would be no end. Israel's hope in the Messiah's arrival was a new exodus. If you've been here, we've been preaching through Exodus this fall. God's people being liberated from Egyptian bondage. Israel's under Roman oppression. Christians are being marginalized. The hope is that the Messiah would come and bring a new liberation from bondage under Roman tyranny and set up a government that would never end. A government in which the Christ would be king and the king's people would reign with him. Israel's hope was that the salvation that the Christ child would bring would be a liberation from political tyranny and social oppression. With the establishment of Israel as the ruling nation and a government ruled by a new king. We should not, in our evangelical kind of tendencies, 
undercut and downplay the reality and truth of the fullness of salvation. It is a salvation that includes liberation from systemic and social oppression. Joel Green, in his commentary on Luke's gospel, said that the author Luke, for him, the reconciliation of God's people and deliverance from enemies are both part of one divine movement. For Luke, visions of salvation cannot be categorized as social or religious or political, for the epic of peace is characterized by all of these. I love that. Salvation, the epic of God's shalom, God's peace encompasses liberation in every sphere. When Christ comes again, God's people will reign with the King forever and ever. But the salvation is more than just national liberation. It's more than just liberation from social marginalization. It is a rescue from an oppression greater than Roman rule. Not less than, more than. It's rescuing from sin, death, and the greatest enemy, Satan. Look at verse 77. Zechariah sings, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This 76 to 79 is talking about the child John, who we know is John the Baptist. This child being born to Zechariah is preparing the way. Preparing the way for God's people to know their need of forgiveness so that when the Christ arrived, they would be ready to be forgiven. And there's a purpose unto this forgiveness and salvation. Verse 74, delivered from our enemies that we might serve him without fear. And this sounds very similar to Exodus language if you've been here. I mean, if you remember from our fall series, God told Moses to, to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Let my people go for a purpose, he says, so that they may serve me. Let my people go so they may serve me. We are set free, we are liberated to worship and serve God. God. Christ brings the greatest liberation, free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, and when Christ returns, we will be set free from the presence of sin. Without the knowledge and the experience of being liberated by a great king and set free to worship him, there will be no deep song horn, house, lastly, horizon. Again, uh, verses 76 to 79 are the only verses about Zechariah's son, John, the one who prepares the way for the Christ. John is the forerunner of Jesus. He's preparing the way of salvation that Christ would usher in. I mean, John's important. He's not the main attraction. He was an indicator of what was to come in Jesus. It's kind of like the bride's mother at a wedding, and when the, when the, bride, uh, when the door, you know, bride is ready to, to walk in and the bride's mother rises and everybody turns and the doors open and the bride comes out, the people aren't looking at the mother. The bride's mother is an indicator for everyone to stand and to behold the bride. The bride's mother lets you know what's next. What's next for God's people as John is being born through Zechariah and Elizabeth? Verse 79, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
The sunrise shall visit us. The divine agent dawn is coming. Jesus Christ is the dawn. The one who will dispel the darkness and shine forth his light to guide us in how we might walk in his ways of peace. There is a new horizon for everyone who knows Jesus. The dawn has arrived and we we walk in communion with him. We live in his ways of peace on earth. Do you want to sing deeply in response to Jesus this Advent and beyond this Advent? The doubtful sing in faith when God works in us and on us. And so let me give you three quick applications. Here's the first. Be still. Don't be overly busy. I really encourage you during this Advent, take one day. If you can't take a day, take a half a day. And be alone and be silent. Spouses, give this gift to your spouse. Enable your spouse to do this. Friends, try to uh, uh, enable other friends to do it. We all have responsibilities. Let's carry some of those responsibilities for one another to enable us to do what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 46, to be still and know that I'm God. Here's the second thing. Let's spend time meditating and trusting that God closes and opens our mouths. He's at work. Perhaps you're in a time right now where it feels like God has your mouth closed. A gracious rebuke is happening. But know God's intent is to lead us to open our mouth to sing His praise. And if you're in a time of singing His praise, rejoice and ask for continued faith and trust in Him. And lastly, I charge you to, to meditate on the fullness of His salvation. Don't let your view of salvation, salvation be so tiny and narrow. I mean, the salvation that the Christ child brings is a horn aggressive rescue that we all need from the house of David, a royal reign, liberty from oppression and marginalization, and from our greatest enemy of sin, death, and Satan. We have a new horizon to walk out our salvation, to live in his ways of peace on earth. Let me close by quoting something I read by John Piper. Piper wrote, If I were an artist... I would paint for my home a special Christmas painting this year and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. It would be one of those big oil canvases. The scene would be of a distant hill at dawn. The sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shoot up out of the picture. And all alone, silhouetted on the, silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture, very dark, is a magnificent wild ox standing with his back seven feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet tall. On both sides of his head, there is a horn curving out and up six feet long and 12 inches thick at the base. He stands there sovereign and serene, facing the southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked and impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion dead. In this Advent season, may we sing deeply from our hearts about Jesus, who gives us a song of salvation, a king who conquers all of our enemies. And when this king works in us and on us, it turns doubt to faith. 
This song is different for people who merely mouth the words during the Christmas season and want to have a little Christmas spirit this time of year versus someone who knows acutely the oppression of sin in their own life and the oppression of sin in this world and that we have a real enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, yet we rejoice in the King who conquers all of our enemies. What song will you sing? How will you sing? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would lead us to sing from a place of depth because you are working in us deeply and on us and opening the eyes of our hearts to behold the fullness of our salvation. I pray that you would give us the joy of that salvation, a joy that abides all times through the highs and the lows of our lives. Thank you that you are the conquering king. And we get to be a part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.